This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. And yes, even a short film, it is a sequel. Uh, In nine minutes, through the unforgettable art of Molly Crabapple, the film takes place in a future in which 2020 was a turning point. We fast forward a couple of decades and look back at this moment of chaos and crisis and pandemic and climate breakdown and fascism marching around openly in the streets and imagine what would happen if we listened to what these crises are trying to tell us and changed everything on principles of justice and repair. It was my great pleasure to co-write the film with Opal Tometi, uh, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And the other narrators in the film were Emma Thompson and Gael Garcia Bernal, two of the great uh, uh, engaged uh, activist, artists, uh, actors of our time, and the great uh, Nigerian climate justice leader, Nemo Bassi. The film features the art and the hands, and we'll talk about hands today uh, as a connector and as a, as a, as a tool of the visionary Molly Crabapple, of course, and was directed by Kim Bookbinder and Jim Bat. It was executive produced by my partner in all things for the last uh, couple of decades or more, Naomi Klein. Uh, And it's presented by The Leap, my organization, and The Intercept, our fantastic partners with whom we also made the original film. Uh, The first film was called A Message from the Future with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I hope that many of you have seen it. It was viewed uh, more than 12 million times online, and it was nominated for an Emmy Award. This time around, we have taken a much more global approach into the subject matter uh, and the narration, which was recorded in Lagos and London and Mexico City and Los Angeles. Uh, And we've taken a more intentional approach to releasing the film, partnering partnering with uh, uh, an extraordinary constellation of radical and visionary organizations who see the film as a useful tool in their organizing work. So today, it is my great honor to host a conversation with a few of the many partners who helped us launch the film and explore the utility of hopeful uh, storytelling of populist utopianism in a very bleak global moment uh, and explore the many connections that light up our collective work. So let me introduce the speakers and let's get our conversation rolling. Nick Tilson is a citizen of the Oglala Lokoto Nation and is president and CEO of the NDN Collective. Hi, Nick. Annie Leonard is the executive director of Greenpeace USA. Annie, a pleasure to have you with us. David Boys is deputy deputy secretary general general secretary. Deputy General Secretary of Public Services International. PSI is a global union federation of more than 700 trade unions representing more than 30 million workers in 154 countries. David, hello. Hi, Abby. Kathy Kennedy is president of the California Nurses Association and a vice president of National Nurses United which is the largest U.S. union and professional association of registered nurses. NNU is also a founding affiliate of Global Nurses United. Kathy, thanks so much for coming. Hello. Uh, And Leila Salazar-Lopez is the executive director of Amazon Watch. Hi, Leila. Morning. 
Let, let, let me start with you. I want to ask you all to speak uh, briefly for about five minutes uh, for the first go round, and then we'll get into a much more informal conversation about the issues uh, that come out of the film and of your work that is, uh, uh, that is connected in so many ways that I'd love to explore with you today. Um, so let us just to, as an opening gambit, why did Amazon Watch want to partner on the launch of the film? Like, how does the unrepentant populist futurism of this little nine minute piece speak to the work that you are doing in this moment? Well, thank you, Avi, and the whole team. And I just want to say thank you for this work of hope, um, because we all, um, this is what we need right now to remember that that we have a vision that that we'll li- we're living in dark times, but we don't have to stay here. And that's really what, um, you know, this, even just watching it again right now, it's it's a reminder again that, that you know, with the, once the smoke clears, you know, we, you know, we, we got to get to work. And it's not like we ever stopped, <laughs> you know, we don't, we, you know, we're not stopping even when, you know, we cannot breathe. Um, and so first of all, thank you. And it's such an honor to be here with, um, with, these wonderful leaders and colleagues this morning. Um, you know, this, you know, when I think about, you know, just the last year um, and what's been happening in um, my home state of California um, and in the Amazon, where we at Amazon Watch do our work to protect and defend the Amazon and show our solidarity with indigenous peoples and demand climate justice. When I think about our work and what's been happening over the last year, I really think about last year and the fires that broke out in the Amazon that the world was you know, awakened to. It's not like these fires weren't happening years and decades before, but just they were so devastating last year that it got the world's attention. Um, and then Australia, and then the Arctic and California, and then the Amazon again, and then California again. Um, and, you know, we were already in, in a time of crisis. We were already in a time of massive deforestation in the Amazon, historic deforestation, historic fires. And then we have, you know, historic fires here in California, the worst that we've ever seen. And while these are the worst, and it really, it really makes us feel like we can't breathe, right? There's so many different reasons why we can't breathe, right? Whether it's COVID that's attacking our respiratory systems, our immune system, it's the fires, um, and it's racial injustice. All of these systemic problems that are attacking our bodies and our lives and Mother Earth are all signals of a of a system out of balance. And, you know, there's so many interconnections. There's so many interconnections with with in between all of these different crises. Um, you know, one thing that, you know, we know that climate change is what is causing these historic fires all over the world, um, even in the Amazon. But the difference about what's happening in the Amazon is that these historic and devastating fires 
in the Amazon and in the Pantanal, the world's largest wetlands as well, they're criminal arson. They are intentional by government policy and by systemic racism that takes and takes and takes and continues to take indigenous people's land. Um, and I would be remiss to say that, you know, this, it's been 528 years of colonization in the Americas, Abiyayala, Turtle Island, and the world, um, well, at least here in the Americas, um, is, is, is coming to terms with that. We're not celebrating, you know, October 12th. We are, we're not celebrating what the, the system has put up, put upon us. We're celebrating indigenous life. We're celebrating indigenous resistance and, and it never stopped. And this is, this is a message of hope. I really see this video as a message of hope that really, you know, supports the resilience, the resistance and the, the, the solutions of um, indigenous peoples and the life ways and wisdom of when Bivid, for example, from South America, of living well. We don't need, as, as, as was said in the video, we don't need endless consumerism. We need to live well. And I think this time has really, I was just talking to my father about this last night. This is a reminder that of what we really need to live well. We need family. We need to, we need our friends. We need community. We need to work together. We need shelter. We need water. We need clean air. Those are the basic things that we need in life. And many people have gotten away from that. And now this is, this is a time for us to remember and come back to that. And so um, I just want to, I'll end there to respect time, but thank you. Leila, it's so beautiful and so many themes uh, already emerging that are common in, across the uh, distances that separate us and, and our work. Um, Nick, Leila uh, spoke beautifully, not just about uh, resistance, but solutions. And it was a, it was a real a privilege for us at The Leap um, to connect with you and the visionary work that you've been doing. I didn't even realize that I had seen um, some powerful resistance work that you did at what is called Mount Rushmore. Uh, recently, and I think a lot of people don't know the central role that some of your folks played um, in that in that gesture of resistance in that stand that was taken. But also, you have a land back program, um, which we specifically uh, mention in the film. So I'd love it if you could speak for a few minutes about uh, what you saw in this piece that connects with the work, the visionary work that you are doing right now. Absolutely. Well, of course. Um, Amadakiapi, Nick Tilson, Amachiapi, Chantea, Washtena, Petuzapolo, Gritu, my Lakota, Lakota language. Um, I mean, the video, it hit at the heartstrings. Like, it, it, it hit what's going down with us in society today. And it also was a reminder that, like, we're in it for a little bit and we're, we've been in it for a while and we're going to be in it for a little bit more. And so, um, and also to me, like the reason why it was motivating to me, like both as a, as a, as just as a person and also somebody running this organization, Indian Collective, is because Indian Collective's 
dream, our, our, our base work is about defending, developing, and decolonizing, um, which means that we're not just about fighting things. We're about defending air, land, water, and rights. And in those spaces, we have to fight, just like we did at July, uh, you know, on July 3rd at Mount Rushmore. But we have to develop regenerative and inclusive economies based in solutions. We have to decolonize through the revitalization of our indigenous languages, ceremonies, life ways. And that if indigenous people are invested into the self-determination to do these things of defend, develop, decolonize on their terms, it actually will contribute to a more just and equitable world for all people and Mother Earth. That's our theory of change. That's what we're about at Indian Collective, um, is building the collective power of indigenous people to do that work. And so when I seen this film, I was like, that's what we're about. We're in that, like, we want to build a world that works for everybody, right? As we fight for indigenous people's rights, like we are fighting for other folks' rights. And we continue to use the language of collective liberation as part of about what we're talking about. And we're talking about the rights of nature. And we're talking about um, Mother Earth. And I think that <clears throat> there's a way for us to fight in authentically who we are without erasure politics, without anti-Blackness, without these things, um, because we have to create on-ramps that allow us to be authentically who we are. And so, you know, in this time of, you know, like social justice reckoning and the, and the really, really the reckoning of this whole nation with um, its really unsustainable system of quasi-democracy and, um, you know, uh, questionable uh, questionable economic system uh, that creates disenfranchisement for people and destroys the earth, that in these moments, there's, a, there's an opportunity in these moments too. And so it's not just like leaning into the film because it's, a, because it's about hope, is that there actually isn't another way. Like there, like there isn't another way. Like we have to, for the survival of our people, we have to um, lean in this direction. And, you know, I'm excited to say that one of the things that Indian Collective is doing in the picture actually just launched yesterday um, was uh, was the land back movement and um, and the land back movement for indigenous people. Ever since indigenous people's land has been taken, um, Indians and indigenous people have been trying to get our land back. And it's not just about physical land because we don't even believe in the ownership of land. We believe it's about reestablishing that relationship with land, which this, which, this, which this video touches on. It's about dismantling the system of white, suprem white supremacy and racial injustice that made it possible for the stilling of our lands and the racial inequities that happen to black, indigenous and people of color today. Um, and so this campaign is a holistic approach and we have demands in this campaign. And so I love that, that, that uh, you know, that the video touches on that and that it ends with that, that if we're going to have repair, we can actually build a world that has black reparations and reparations for people of color. For indigenous people, it's it's pretty simple. Land back, land back, Indian lands back in Indian hands. And so that we can steward those things and create some, create our economies and also reclaim our power. Um, and that gets into like one of the other final like things about the um about the land back campaign and we really have four demands in the campaign defund dismantle return and consent defund 
on the, the system of white supremacy and defund the military industrial complex and the over-policing of our people that maintains the stealing of our lands and the oppression of our people, dismantle the system of white supremacy, um, like the way that the Bureau of Land Management, National Forest Service, National Park supposedly manages these things in, in, uh, in, for the benefit, and then return indigenous lands, and lastly, consent. And this part's important, and this is the part that that the last part, and I'll leave, I'll leave with, with this note, consent is about entering into an entirely new policy era in dealing with indigenous people, instead of this era of consultation. Of we're going to consult you before we build pipelines through your lands. We're gonna consult you before we extract resources from Mother Earth or violate your human, human rights. We need to end, go into an entire new policy era of consent, free and prior informed consent, consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And um, because it'll change the, the dynamics. Once Indigenous, once you have to have consent to cross Indigenous people's lands that affect our lives, you will not see pipelines being built. You will not see extractive industries happen because Indigenous communities will be bounding, binding together, just like we have all around the world throughout history. That's why 80% of the world's biodiversity that's left is left in places like the Amazon, is left because of the warriors in these communities who, who, who have had those opportunities to do that and, and have the courage to stand up against that. So I like that the video talks about that we're in this fight, but as we're fighting, we're radically imagining what we are building. And um, there's something raw about that. I relate to that as an indigenous person. So I'm about it. I'm about it all the way. <laughs> Your enthusiasm has been such a blessing, uh, Nick, and thank you for that. Um, Kathy, I want to go to you next because something that Nick said, uh, one of the great slogans of this political moment, Indian lands and Indian hands, speaks directly to the question of hands, which, as you know, is central to the vision of the film. We see Molly's hands throughout the nine minutes um, dreaming this future into being before our eyes. But the question of hands is a central one. And we were talking before we started about how hard it is for us to be stuck in these boxes, especially for nurses who have been on the front lines of the pandemic um, and whose care throughout life and at the end of life um, is communicated through touch, which is such a crucial human function, uh, which has been so hard to come by these days. Give us a little bit of a sense of what the film, how, how it lands with you and, and the work of NNU and, and the Global Nurses United in this moment. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Avi. And, you know, it's really, first, let me just say it's a real honor to be here with all of the guest panelists, you know, and I want to thank you for um Thank Haymarket Books and everybody that was involved in the film, the message uh, for the future to the years of repair. Um, I've been a nurse for 40 years. I'm one of the vice presidents of National Nurses United NNU. And NNU is um, the founding member of Global Nurses United, GNU, which is a federation of premier nurse and healthcare workers union in 29 nations on every continent. And let me just say that nurses, we can see life's work reflected in this important film where the world dominated by corporate interests and economic growth is transformed to where everyone, everyone is essential. 
You know, that's exactly the world that nurses have been fighting to achieve for our patients, our communities, and ourselves. And increasingly, since GNU was founded in 2013, union nurses have been using um, our global collective power in that fight. And so over the years, you know, we came together from our respective countries to talk about the challenges in our home countries to discuss ways on how we can collaborate and provide solidarity to each other we take on these global fights. Um, we realized over time um, that our colleagues and their patients are experiencing the exact same problems that we see here in the United States and all around the world. So, for example, you know, um, our nurse-led fight to win Medicare for All in America is interlinked with the fight of nurses all around the world to protect their public resources, especially health care, from privatization. NNU's Disaster Relief Project, um, the RN Response Network, RNRN, also opened our eyes to our colleagues' interconnected global fights. You know, we deployed volunteer nurses all around the world, providing hands-on care in the wake of disasters fueled by the corporate disregard for the environment, as well as the government incompetence. So in this work, we see firsthand how the global climate crisis threatens all people, all people, including forcing them to flee from drought and famine and the significant health impacts of corporate aligned government exploiting xenophobia from refugees and immigrants. You know, in our hospitals and clinics, the nurses around the world are also being asked to do more and more work with less and less resources. And of course, with this global pandemic has amplified all of the threats to our patients, healthcare workers and nurses. You know, in the United States, our black and brown and indigenous patients experience a much more severe impact of COVID-19. And our lives have been put at risk by the employers, as well as the federal, state, and local governments who left us on the front lines without the proper personal protective equipment, PPE, that we really needed. So, you know, this pandemic knows nothing about national borders. And as a result, our efforts to contain and mitigate this pandemic to protect our patients, ourselves, must be a global scope. Because we can't come together during this pandemic, the GNU members uh, came together online, Skype, Zoom, Teams, to share information, resources, support, and solidarity. And together, we clearly understood that what was working effectively around the world during this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, as some governments with a collective voice of union nurses to guide them, they took decisive action on protective equipment, testing, surveillance, and sheltering in place. What hasn't worked is the corporate-backed government prioritizing profits over people. Now, I want to emphasize that in the United States, where our government has been among the worst of the worst in its COVID-19 response, the NNU members use their collective power to win some really important victories at the facility level. You know, these victories happened even in hospitals owned by the wealthiest of healthcare corporations on the planet. And that's because the collective power of working people can profoundly move mountains. Yes, we can envision a world that prioritizes public health and safety, the good 
the safe safety of the planet um, and human relationship is documented in this film. And so as Global Nurses United, we will continue to keep fighting for this world. And again, you know, I'm, a, I'm really in honor and awe to be on a panel with all of you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. Um, David, I'm thinking about nurses on the front lines. Um, public workers of all kinds uh, have been the shield between populations and the pandemic. And I think the film tries to identify some of the lessons. The pandemic has been a kind of awful teacher showing, lighting up so many of the injustices um, and the tolls that white supremacy and, and, and late stage capitalism have taken on human life around the world, um, but also has pointed our, our way to so many things that people in your movements uh, collectively and others have been fighting for for decades. Public Services International, uh, has been doing it for, what, 113 years, defending the public against the forces of privatization and profit. And the film advances a vision of universal public services. The pandemic also taught us that governments, especially in rich countries, have almost unlimited resources that can be deployed when an emergency is declared. And if the people could declare this emergency, we could see those resources deployed for the benefit of all. So tell us a little bit about Public Services International's work in relation to the themes of the film. Yes, thank you, Avi. And, and again, I wanna add my thanks and my respect uh, to all the people behind the movie and also the people here in front of the camera uh, and uh, with us going forward. And uh, I think uh, Kathy has laid out uh, a number of the things that uh, a number of the issues facing us in PSI and and facing our families, facing our communities, um, because we do represent health workers. Again, the majority of these workers are, are women, but we represent the broad range of public service workers. A lot of them you don't see. Uh, a lot of them you 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 don't even realize they're there until the services don't work, until the services stop. Uh, and, and in too many countries, you, the services you take for granted, uh, they don't even exist, such as access to clean water, uh, access to uh, modern energy services. It, it's, it's quite incredible. Look, we're thrilled to be part of this initiative because, uh, again, Avi, I think uh, your crew has done a really good job uh, in, in showing us uh, imagining a hopeful future. And, and really, that's what we need right now, because uh, the bad news just keeps raining down. The stress levels are, are going going way up. There, there's a whole range of things that, that we're working on. And, and, you know, I could I could pepper in a whole whole bunch of the issues, whether it's tax justice, whether it's debt relief for developing countries who have been under the, the boot of the IMF and the World Bank for way too long, paying for odious debt. Of, of the World Bank, but I want to focus on privatization. It's the thin edge of the corporate wedge to take over our collective and transform our societies. Uh, there's other pieces, such as destroying the collective power of workers in the trade unions and the insidious power of consumerism, it really insidious, uh, that to mention but a few, and, and your film encapsulates a whole bunch of these. But what we're trying to do in, in PSI right now is to build an online tool because guess where life is right now? It's online. Hello, everybody online. Let's reach out our hands and, and touch each other online. We're calling it 
people over profit uh, appropriately. It's an online campaign builder, and our ghost behind there can show a split screen. Um, it's a knowledge library, a campaign builder on fighting privatization. Our aim is to build and connect a response-ready network of people and organizations able to respond to privatization threats worldwide in real time, to connect organizations. This is what we need to do. To fight the privateers in Uttar Pradesh, India, or in Lagos, Nigeria, now. And we've got to collect the data, the research, the publications in one place, well-tagged, categorized, available for researchers and campaigners, but also general public, governments, media people, We've got to empower campaigners to deal with the threat when it comes to them, because most people haven't seen privatization when it comes to them. They don't know what it's about. And so this is where we need a campaigning tool and a space for people to get up to speed quickly. And so this is what we're doing now. And we hope that with the people you're attracting, Avi, and your team and the people on this website, we can bring this together. We can spread the best practices on to fight the privateers, to amplify our voices globally, to make our publications and research and finding public to analyze and foresee the privatization trends. So if we can show the allies screen, you'll just see how many, you'll, you'll just see the letter A. We've got hundreds and hundreds of organizations already coming with us. If we look at, at the, the, the campaign builder, uh, if we show the nurses, you can build your campaign in minutes with this tool. We've spent a year and a half, and we've spent dues from our affiliates, including NNU, to create this tool. Um, and we're excited about it. Okay, it's not as exciting as a movie, but it is exciting. And so it's it's uh, aimed to allow us to, to, to connect, to build content, to actually put pressure on national and local governments and to uh, to allow us really to connect case studies, to add multi, uh, multimedia videos, such as the one we watched today, and to, to signal events. Uh, I hope we can get into real life events, but also uh, to, to bring in uh, virtual events. And then if we can show the Africa map, Let's look at the threats, the, to monitor the threats. What we're showing now is the companies in Africa who want to get into the Africa water network. Now, you'll see some companies there, but also behind them, we'll see when we start pulling that, that dashboard apart, we'll see who's behind the companies, whether it's the, the French government, whether it's the World Bank, or USAID or the Millennium Challenge Corporation. So look, there's a lot of stuff we were doing at PSI, but this is one tool, Avi, that we're willing to contribute to this global effort to change our future. And as I said, privatization is the thin edge of this corporate wedge, but the, 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 the privateers and their whole network, whether it's at Davos with the Great Reset, whether it's in the, the you know, with the, whether it's at the UN, whether it's, it's, these guys are ready to take advantage of this crisis, as I don't need to tell you. And so please join us 
in this aspect of the fight as well. Thanks. Lovely. I really appreciate the spirit of tool sharing. We we definitely made the film uh, hoping that it would be useful. And it's been really gratifying to see that lots of folks have not only responded emotionally, but found it useful as an organizing tool. And David, I think the resources of the Global Union Federation, like Public Services International, being lent to a, to a campaigning tool um, is just a really constructive approach um, based on shared values and, and, and a need, a deep need for transformative change. Um, let's throw more tools on the table and share them. Um, Annie, this, the, the tool of storytelling is one that um, um, you certainly changed my life as a, as a filmmaker and storyteller with the way that you found to, in the early days of, of online storytelling to share uh, an, a transformative analysis. Um, and now at Greenpeace, you're involved in all of these different issues. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, about Greenpeace in this moment and the power of story um, for you in, 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 this, in this almost surreal apocalyptic movie that we're living through and the insistent hopeful vision that we keep putting back on the table. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks to all these panelists. Was that like the best half hour that we've had in months? I just have to say, I feel so full. Thank yes. you. Thank you, everybody. Yes. What a good morning. It's morning here, Ryan. Um, so I am a huge believer in the power of stories. And I wasn't always. I am a scientifically trained activist. And for um, years and years, I was trapped in the myth that so many environmentalists are, the myth that the truth will set us free. And I made charts and I made graphs and I chased people down and talked about parts per million and endocrine disruptors and numbers and graphs. And when people didn't listen, I made films and did everything I could to, um, to just sort of shove my facts into people's faces, hoping it would move them. And it didn't move them. If the truth would set us free, we'd be free. Like we, we have all the truth about climate change and racial injustice and economic um, inequity and all these things. And so I really had a breakthrough by realizing that the stories that we tell ourselves as a society are blocking our collective ability to imagine something better. And if we can't really imagine and really believe something better, it's hard to fight for it. And it's not a coincidence that this happens. It is because um, the corporate elite bombard us with stories all day that serve to entrench their power and keep us separated. So there's stories like there is no alternative that they want us to believe. There's stories like um, inequality is the result of individual shortcomings rather than systemic failures. There's stories like we have to choose between a healthy economy and a healthy environment. You certainly can't have both. You know, these kinds of stories are just, we're permeated, our society's permeated in them. There's the story of, of rugged individualism, that collective action is for weak people, and that if you're really strong, you have rugged individualism and the free market and privatization and neoliberalism, and those are the answer. And, you know, history has proven that wrong. And then, on top of all these stories, they use fear and racism to manipulate their way into the halls of power and write the rules that enshrine those stories. And so um, what's exciting to me about this film and that I see work happening all around the world is all of us coming together to reject those dominant stories and write our own ones. That we can stand together and collectively build new stories that assert that a green and just and peaceful future is not just possible, but that we collectively can manifest it. And that's what this film does so incredibly well. Um, when I think about the stories that are blocking us right now, one of the big stories that we really need to challenge 
is the scarcity story. I mean, how many of us have heard elected officials and business leaders and mansplaining uncles all tell us, nice idea, but there's no money for that. We can't afford that, whether it's healthcare for all or um, uh, good, robust public water supplies or a, a social safety net or good union jobs, whatever it is, we can't afford that. We hear that constantly. But one of the things that the COVID crisis has taught us is that there is in fact, money, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the U.S., I mean, all many governments, but I'm looking at, I work in the U.S., I'm focusing there. The U.S. government, the same government who says that they can't afford health care for all or clean drinking water, the same government is giving billions of dollars to huge corporations. And there's more coming. So what I'm excited about right now and what Greenpeace is looking at is the moment we have right now. There is a once in a lifetime infusion of public money, our money, our money going into the economy right now. It's already happened some. It's going to keep coming a once in a lifetime infusion of money. And the old stories are crumbling. This is crumbling even faster than our public infrastructure is crumbling. So look at the opportunity here. If we come together and demand that this huge infusion of public money is spent to build this better future, the future that this film lays out so beautifully, this is a huge pivot point for our society. So we're working, Greenpeace is working with organizations across the issue spectrum, and we'd love to work with all of you co-panelists on advancing a vision for a just recovery. So a just recovery would be ensuring that these public investments are built on values of equity and justice and compassion and community and creativity and courage. That's what a just recovery would be. It would create millions, millions of good union jobs in caring for each other and in caring for the planet. Clean renewable energy and climate resilient infrastructure and decarbonizing our transportation system and regenerative agriculture that feeds people while healing the soil and helping the climate, like literally the possibilities to do this right and solve multiple crises at the same time are infinite. And there are too many crises to solve one at a time. So this is our moment. Um, so there's so many things we can invest in if we work together to ensure these stimulus packages build the future laid out in this film. And we also have to make sure that we don't invest in certain things. And top on that list is fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are the key driver of climate change. And the existing already operating fossil fuels in the world blow us over the limit of how much carbon we can release into the environment and still have any semblance of a functioning planet. So you think about if we're already built, extracting and burning and processing too much, why on earth would we possibly add more? And any new investments in fossil fuels right now lock in that continued carbon production for decades and rob us of our window that we have left, our shrinking window that we have left to build this better future. So Greenpeace is doubling down to make sure that no public money goes to prop up an industry that is both deadly and dying. And because we are so committed to justice, we must ensure that as we transition off of fossil fuels, as we ensure that no money goes to fossil fuels and it instead goes to a just recovery, we must center the work, the fossil fuel dependent workers and communities. These fossil fuel workers are our heroes. They have built and powered this country. They have, they have made us a stronger, healthier country. And we owe them a huge amount, often at great cost to themselves. They've done this. And so we owe them a debt of gratitude. And unlike the fossil fuel companies that are dumping them on the curb as their industry declines, we will never waver from our commitment to a just transition. And that is how we are going to build the better future that is laid out in this film so beautifully. 
Annie, thank you. Yep, I'm clapping too, Kathy. That was, I mean, I think for me, really a rousing reminder of the stakes of this political moment. Um, um, a bunch of us on this panel are in the United States. Um, I'm in Canada, uh, but have been living in the States. And the U.S. election, obviously, obviously is an is a, is a event of global import. And it kind of feels like if we're lucky in three weeks, we'll start the fight. Um, because getting rid of Trump, and this is true globally, uh, as well as in the United States and, and on Turtle Island generally, getting rid of Trump is the bare minimum for starting on the work that needs to be done. And the alternative to Trump is is not going to uh, you know step into office embodying the values in the film, uh, embodying a spirit of reparations and repair. Um, that's going to be a titanic struggle. Um, where social movement forces have to come together as we try to uh, imagine and dream of in the film um, to put that kind of pressure. So there's a story, uh, there's a question from uh, Ben Factor in the in the chat um, saying, I love the visuals of the short film. For the panelists, what role does art play in building the future we deserve? And I, and I just want to um, spin that question for you all and throw it open for anyone who wants to jump in. In, in these high stakes political moments, like the one we're in right now, where everything is on the line, there are not just billions, but trillions of dollars of public resources that are just being poured into the, into the financial sector, free money just being handed over by the ocean full from, from rich countries. Um, the global South and many countries around the world still locked um, in debt and not able to unleash those public uh, resources because of the debt traps. Um, and a very short window on climate and 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 other related crises um, in which to act globally. And so it was hard a little bit as a filmmaker to to take six months and try to make a film with this radically hopeful vision of the future in a moment of such political turmoil. So when we talk about the role of art in transformative change, it's even harder in a moment of such high political stakes. But you all are using story and organizing resistance on the ground and advancing uh, alternatives, which is kind of a storytelling task. How do you balance the need for hope and, and, and story and an alternative future and the role of art in that with the necessities of this political moment um, when a whole bunch of resistance and really material concerns, PPEs, protection of people uh, on, on the front lines of all these crises? It's the biggest question. It's the whole, it's the whole thing. Anyone want to jump in and take it? Well, I'll start. You know, as as a nurse, you know, I think what we've seen is, again, with this pandemic. I mean, like you say, this is this is an opportune time for us. There's money there. There's money there. They're choosing. They're choosing not to provide it. You know, and as a nurse, we need it. We need PPE. And we know it's there, but we constantly have to fight, fight, fight. And I think the film, I think when you when you when you talk about stories, it's a way to let people know that it is possible, that it is going to be a fight. And really, it's about the collective, you know, joining forces like everyone has said on this panel. That is so important that we need to put people first over profits. I mean, the money that we we put into, you know, we pay taxes constantly. So now that money is there to, you know, and people need help, you know, and as a nurse, we want to heal, we want to help. But at the same time, we don't want to be a warrior. You know, we don't want to risk ourselves in dying. We have nurses and healthcare workers that are dying every day from this. 
we need to be protected. And so I think, you know, the combination of storytelling, working together, really putting people first over profit is so important. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I, I'm up there in age and I'm about ready to retire and I'm, I'm still hopeful. I talk to my grandchildren every day. I want them to have that world, you know, that we've been talking about. It is possible. And so we need to just have those stories that convince people that together we can do this. It is about people and moving. So Nick, you, um, the Indian collective uh, put out a powerful video recently of the actions at Mount Rushmore. So I know you're thinking about, um, the combination of storytelling and resistance in the streets and asserting solutions. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, man, um, the role of culture bearers, storytellers, artists, they're the interpreters of what's happening in society today. And the fact that we don't, as a society, fully value artists and fully value storytellers and fully value, uh, you know, creatives is terrible. It's actually probably one of the reasons why we're in this damn situation that we're in, because, you know, the, the, the role that they have is um, many of us in society, we're going through society and we're doing our, we're trying to survive. We're trying to do our thing. And then all of a sudden artists hold the mirror up to us and say, look at what's going on. They do this in indigenous ceremonies. They do this in films. They do this in art. And you're like, whoa. And so I think that as we build the future that we're built, because we're going to accomplish everything that's in this video, um, <laughs> uh, is that we have I to I believe make, it when you say it like that. <laughs> I mean, for, I mean and, and it is that culture of abundance. The role of storytellers and artists um, is to help us make, to help us believe that. To help us, no matter what we've been through, or what whatever sacrifices, our struggle, our pain that we are that we're going through, and how, no matter what the odds are, that the the, the the ability of artists to help us bring us to a place of radically visioning what the future is is powerful. Because I think that as we're in the trenches and we're fighting, we need to see what we're fighting for. Because if we can see what we're fighting for, shit, we're gonna fight harder. We're gonna. We're going to be hungrier. We're going to sacrifice. Our sacrifice is going to be raw because of that. And I think that that is the that's this moment that we're in. That's this that's this very moment that we're in. And so I think that as we think about the future, we got to make sure that that we're really uh, intentionally including and integrating artists into everything that we're doing. Not, I'm not even saying like, well, let's have an artist program that says this is how we serve artists, but we integrate art and storytelling into all levels of our work because then it actually changes our work. And, you know, for being an organization that is, you know, 30, 30 plus people right now, we got five stories, you know, five storytellers and artists on our team because we see that as a way to value and and so I think that's one of the I think that's one of the important parts is not just the whole piece, but also like, let's just make this the new normal moving forward, because the old normal of not valuing artists and not having them is terrible. And uh, and, and this this kind of puts it at center stage. And the last thing is that the balance, like the balance, right, um, is just balancing both of those things of fighting in the streets while we're building and just being being 
recognizing that we that, that no matter how hard things are, even when there's a global pandemic, we have to be fighting right now too. And um, and we have to find a way to fight, you know, you know, safely. And we have to find what that balance is. Um, and of course, art and mediums is a way. So nice. Layla, I can see you want to jump in. Um, so in, in Spanish, uh, there's there's a phrase that just I always come back to. And it says, la cultura cura. And that means culture cures. Yeah. And and it really is, is you know, like how could we, you know, do this work of defending and, you know, protecting and resisting um, without music, art, dance, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's, we want to make, you know, many have said it in the past, you know, we want to make the revolution. We want to call it the revolution. We want to make it irresistible and it's not going to be, you know, it's not inviting if we're just up there with a bullhorn screaming all the time. Right. We got to do that sometimes. Believe me, I love doing that. But we also want to dance in the streets. I mean, I don't want to go to a protest with, you know, just on a bullhorn. I want to, I want to see the art. I want to see the dance. Um, I want to see the ceremony, you know, and when we go to BlackRock, the biggest investor of climate destruction, you know, that is investing in fossil fuels, it's investing in agribusiness, industrial agribusiness that is destroying the Amazon, that is, that is encouraging the stealing of indigenous people's land in the Amazon right now. When we go to BlackRock, we go with massive banners. We go and we paint banners in front of the, in front of the, uh, the, the street in front of their offices. We leave it there for as a reminder for everyone in that building to see, you know, because it it is is art. Art is beauty, and it does help cure. And I think that's that that is something that, you know, um, I I've seen in in this time, you know, that we've had to learn how to do this online, right? You know, we loved. There's no, nothing replaces going to, you know, a music event with, you know, with thousands of people. But, you know, we have been able to do amazing events with thousands of people online, like the Artists United for Amazonia, where artists, I mean, you know, people like Jane Fonda and Barbara Streisand and, you know, artists from all across Brazil um, came together and said, you know what, the situation in the Amazon is so bad, we're gonna come together and unite our voices you know, to to call for emergency relief um, for COVID in the Amazon for indigenous peoples. And that had never happened before. So while we want to be together and we want to have, you know, have the cultural events together, we can still, you know, unite um, through culture online. Um, David, if you promise not to dance, I'll invite you to address this question of uh... Art as an act of resistance. Um, look, uh, <clears throat> you know, we go into this meeting with the with the World Bank and and the corporations, and we've prepared our thirty page briefs and all that good shit. But look, uh, sorry, and here's my most effective thing: I've got this uh, British water worker 
from uh, up north in the UK, and I can't even attempt to to imitate his accent. He's please spent, don't. That would be like dancing. No, no, I, and I wish I could. I wish I was that good of a comedian who had that facility to do it. And he has been 20 years under a public utility, and that same utility was privatized, and he's got 10 years. And in his unique way from the shop floor, he tells the difference of being under a public utility and a private utility. Just the story from the workplace on how it changed from being focused on public service and being focused on maximizing profits was way better than my 30-page brief that we'd research this up one side and down the other and all the angles you wanted. He blew away this this paper that we'd spent three months checking everything in five minutes. He nailed it. And the other thing that we did at, again, another one of these very dry, crusty meetings, we brought this Filipino uh, water worker again, uh, and she was uh, maybe, you know, she, she was not the most literate person, but she brought a bottle of water that she drew from her tap from the water privateer, one of the ones that the Asian Development Bank was said was the best one. And this bottle of water, she offered it to the the CEO of the water utility was up on the panel and said, here, drink this. And it was yellow and it was horrible. I mean, again, it's not sophisticated. So stories from the worker, stories from the workplace, direct things. That's what we as labor can bring. And then finally, I know when we go to meetings in Africa where our workers, I mean, again, I've got from our stories on the water wars, a worker in Nairobi water, she when she goes home, she doesn't have water at home. She she lives in one of the slums. She does not have access to water. We we sit through, you know, a two day planning session and we go through this and that and whatever. At the end, these these workers, they sing and dance. They show their joy and their energy. They bring it all together. They bring their spirit in. And every time I'm humbled and I'm proud and I'm there with them. And every day that keeps me there. That keeps me going with our workers. Thanks. Um, It's definitely something that we um, learned when we launched the Leap Manifesto, which was a political document in Canada five years ago that led to the founding of the Leap as an organization. We brought together movement leaders from across a huge spectrum. We had generations of indigenous leadership and housing activists and anti-poverty activists and Black Lives Matter Toronto and trade union leaders, some of the biggest ones in our country, and sat together for two days and talked about what how we could work together. And when we decided to do a manifesto, um, a joint statement about the sort of core political demands that would get our country off of fossil fuels in a way that's systematically targeted white supremacy and and economic inequality. Um, We, Naomi understood, Naomi Klein, who wrote the first draft of the manifesto, which was like a negotiated text with many, many people in track changes in a Word document back in 2015. Um, But the key thing that she understood that I think transformed my own life as a journalist for 30 years who went over into full-time activism and storytelling uh, and in service of movements was that it can't be a laundry list. 
It's the same thing, David, you were talking about, the reports and the, and the bullet points. They are necessary parts of the process, and research and documenting is, is uh, indispensable. But the film, Message from the Future to the Years of Repair, tries to tell a story where movements come together in a way we don't say, we don't ever say movements came together. We try to illustrate how uh, defunding police and how the abolition, the demands of the abolition movement over generations fuse with climate justice, fuse with the centrality of indigenous rights and leadership, um, connect to issues of, of how migrant workers are treated, of how workers organize in trade unions to bring the economy to a screeching halt. It's one story. And we don't kind of pull apart the different threads. In fact, we try to knit them together. So this, you know, represents a central question around the theory of change. We're talking about monumental change um, in a time when things kind of couldn't be worse. And yet there are these almost miraculous uh, cracks of light on the political horizon, like the fact that we suddenly see after decades of austerity and scarcity thinking that there are vast public resources available for change. So as people working in different uh, corners of different movements. It would be great to have a round of reflections on um, the both, you know, the prospects of of movements coming together as they do in the film, and the conditions required to create them. Because we, you know, we we have to be honest. We don't have a movement of movements right now that has the power that has that can contest for power um, in the global capitals. We're we've been building one over generations, and we need one now like never before. So let's have a sort of a state of play of the landscape of, of interconnection and intersections among movements, what you see happening and what you think needs to happen. Annie, you want to jump in on this one? Yes, this is something I'm enormously optimistic about. I've been an activist for 30 years, and I have just seen over the last five years or so, I mean, the direction of travel has been towards more integration, but over the last five years or so, it was actually since like 2016, something happened in 2016 that really supercharged it. Um, there is uh, enormous evolution here. I feel like 10 or 20 years ago, the kind of cross-movement collaboration was very tactical. You know, I'll come to your protest if you come to mine, or I'll sign your thing if you sign mine, and that way we give the illusion of all being together, but we weren't really. And the biggest change that I see is a deeper understanding of power and that we are ceding power by not coming together. And that it's not just like the stories that dominate our society. It's not a coincidence that we are all kept separate. That is part of the strategy of keeping us weak and isolated. And so a greater understanding of power and also a greater, um, a deeper systemic understanding of the forces that we are fighting against. Um, because the truth is, it's not just I come to your protest and you come to mine. They're the same protest. It's the same systems of oppression that are denying PPE to nurses and that are um, kicking indigenous people off their land to, to cut down the trees or to drill for oil. It's the exact same racial capitalist logic and systems of oppression that are screwing us all over. And we only serve the oppressors by staying apart. So we have really come together. And in the climate movement, which I'm in, I've seen such a beautiful deepening of our understanding that it is not just um, good to also fight racism while we fight climate. It is absolutely mission critical that that the existence of pollution relies on the existence of racism. And Hop Hopkins and Heather McGee and others have written about this so beautifully. If if we societally were not willing to write off some communities as others as sacrifice zones where pollution is allowed, we wouldn't tolerate pollution. But because we have a racially based society we allow pollution to exist. So it is 
imperative, imperative that we combat systemic racism if we're going to combat climate. Same thing with workers, same thing with immigration, same thing with women. It is all the same struggle. I said to a labor friend the other day that our movement has to come together. I said, we have to be like a salad. And he said, no, no, we have to be like a smoothie. And so (laughs) here's to being a smoothie that we are one and the same. The new salad is the smoothie, the revolutionary smoothie. I love that. Um, I, I'm I'm feeling the absence in this conversation, and I just want to name it forthrightly of two of the the key partners for the launch of the film, the Movement for Black Lives and the Dream Defenders, um, folks who are do, off in the trenches doing really critical work right now and weren't able to join us. Um, but the the racial justice uprisings of of this year have been. Uh, game changing for us all. We owe so much to that work, um, and 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 it's given us Annie, as I think you just articulated really well, um, a really clarifying lens that helps us bring together these struggles against racial capitalism. Um, and Nick, I know that you've been working w- with those folks in the land back uh, program. So um, I think this is maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit about real time uh, intersections. That, that you're involved in and the prospects for big change that you think lie therein. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. Well, yeah, first of all, I mean, we have to acknowledge that this moment in this country at this point in the history was created by the leadership for the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter. And this moment and that this history was actually created by that. And, and it's important for our movements to acknowledge that because, because um, it's, 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 it's a way that we can build fundamental relationships for moving forward. And so in the work that we're doing in the Land Back um, campaign and the Land Back movement um, is we made one of our organizing principles collective liberation. Like, basically, it's one of our organizing principles. It is fundamentally what we're fighting for. We're fighting for Indian lands back into indigenous hands. We're fighting for black reparations. We don't recognize the colonial borders that divide indigenous people. Um, and, and and therefore, it inherently makes our work across borders. Therefore, it's, uh, and so like these are themes that we have to just fundamentally make how we do our work because it creates an on-ramp for true collaboration. And we've seen that in, 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 in even in, the, even in the, the, the action that we did at Mount Rushmore on July 3rd, we connected the issue that we were fighting there, which is one of the longest indigenous legal battles uh, in the United States against the United States uh, amongst indigenous people and connected it to the movement for black lives and what is happening in their struggle and recognizing that in, in, in recognizing in that, and that's a, that's so important that we, we that we create the connective tissue because now we're building relationships because movements are made up of relationships of people who are willing to sacrifice and bleed together. Um, but we have to have a vision for what that looks like. And I think as we're developing that, we recognize that even in the indigenous people struggle, there's anti-blackness that exists within our movement. So we make it one of our political analysis tools as part of the land back movement is to create some political analysis and education for our people, because these movements are just as much about bringing our people along as they are bringing our people together. So, um, yeah, so I just want to say that. And I think like, man, like big shout outs to like Carissa Lewis, Patrice Colors, like so many partners that have, you know, Alicia Garza, like there's a lot of leaders 
um, that have helped create this political moment and are helping carry this torch. And many of them are, uh, are you know, uh, under persecution because of it. Um, and, and many sacrifices are being made. And so we have to, we have to remember these things too. Um, and absolutely that if we don't, uh, if we don't build movements for collective liberation, they, they divide us. You know, we've seen that in the, in the, in the climate fight where they, you know, they try to divide indigenous people with the white environmental organizations, with labor movements and try to pin each other against each other. When the reality is, there's an opportunity for us to keep leaning in with one another. If we actually see each other's struggle, um, and, and embody it as part of our work. That's a that's a huge one, and I I know certainly um, one of the most effective tools that power has used to divide um, our, our resistance and our collective struggles for liberation has been pitting uh, and invoking um, unions and and working people against indigenous environmental struggles and others. Um, but there are there are so many ways that we've been divided. <laughs> Why pick one? Well, we, we have a couple of important union leaders here. It's significant that we have union leaders from the sectors of care, from the fight against privatization and the defense of public services, um, and not the unions that represent um, extraction and manufacturing and and steel and some of those um, uh, some of those industrial uh, unions that um, are, have still, in many countries, uh, st- are still being weaponized against a struggle for collective liberation. But let's explore for a moment um, w- where we're at in terms of the trade union movement and and connecting with social movements globally. David, I know that you're poised in a global organization and working in different countries around the world um, to look at some of that. And I want to f- focus it a little bit on the issue of the strike. Um, p- part of the exciting thing about the Green New Deal, if we cast our minds back a year uh, or a little bit more to when that big revolutionary idea emerged and excited a lot of people, was that it helped people think about strikes and general strikes as the kind of tool that could bring the economy to a shuddering halt in the service of justice. Right now, we've seen a pandemic actually suspend the global economy. It's like the wily e. coyote of the global economy is like over the in midair over the cliff right now. And in the in the film, you know, you see that the pandemic has done that. Can workers do that? And can workers connect with other social movements to do something more than a protest, which is actually an economic disruption? The trade union movement has a couple hundred years of teaching on this subject that we are desperately needing to learn. But the secret to us learning, it seems to be breaking down some of these walls that have divided trade unionism from other social movement forces. I see you grimacing or, or grinning a little bit, David. I know it's a it's a sticky question, but tell me where you're where you're feeling prospects for connection here. Well, first of all, your your reference to Bugs Bunny and Wiley e. Coyote ages you, Av. Uh, Thanks, appreciate I that. I don't want to comment too much on that. Um, it's also a cultural reference point uh, that puts you firmly in the North American. Um, but okay. Uh, first of all, let me just say that in in PSI we do have some coal burners because remember a number of the electricity producing uh, utilities do remain public. Uh, a number of the oil producing utilities on the planet do remain public, um, and so should be subject to uh, public policy and public pressure. Um, But look, uh, first of all, building trust between trade unions and their core work, because as most of us on this panel know, 
the core job of trade unions is negotiating collective agreements uh, for workers, and we must reach compromise. We don't have a choice. Whereas uh, uh, in civil society, you don't have to reach compromise. You can stay on a position, and if you don't reach compromise, too bad. But trade unions have to reach compromise, otherwise we're not doing our job. And we, you know, and then we defend the 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 contract and grievance handling and all that. And oftentimes, you know, there's not good enough understanding between what a trade union does, what NGOs do, what CSOs do. And I'm talking about not just North America. I'm talking about countries in Asia, countries in Africa, countries in Latin America, in Europe, in in the the post-Soviet republics. I've been I've been in PSI for 21 years. I can tell you, there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, about who does what, when, why, and we have to take the time to build understanding. First of all, understanding and clarity is the first step to building trust, and trust takes time. And you have to learn each other's language. You have to take the time. It doesn't happen just because you say it needs to happen. And in PSI, we understand that if we're going to change the policies that decide what's going on on this planet, we need to work in collaboration with people in our communities that depend on the services that our members provide, whether it's electricity, water, healthcare public transport, education, you name it. We can't do it just as labor. And so it's absolutely imperative for PSI to get out there and to be with you, to be with everybody. Now, uh, disrupting capital. Uh, look, uh, th there, there's no doubt that uh, we have to look at what are the ways to disrupt capital. You mentioned the global strike. I'm going to say right here, right now, if you want to talk to those workers who work for private capital right now, who have spent the last six to eight months on either zero salary or 30% of salary, and now you're going to ask them to go on a, a global strike with no salary, you're going to have a tough time convincing them that now is the moment to do it. Uh, a global strike where you down tools and don't get a salary and have the forces of, uh, of of oppression beating the snot out of you, that's going to take a few years to prepare. That is not going to happen just because, you know, it, we think it's a good thing. But look, it, you know, we don't need to directly attack capital. It, for us, it's an indirect capital. And for us, we need to address the, the political, philosophical mindset known generically as neoliberalism, where the state is made subservient to capital and does the bidding of capital. So, and Kathy can confirm this to me, strikes in the public sector are very tricky. Uh, and I've been on a number of picket lines, and I know there is no stronger picket line than a picket line of health workers. The, the steel workers are not as strong as nurses and health workers on the picket line because there you're removing an essential service. You're removing a service that can that, that is so key to how families and communities live. You look at, I mean, we've been through uh, education strikes. We've been through garbage collection strikes. Those are the most visible. But when you have a water strike, 
<laughs> when you don't have any water, when you have an electricity strike, that's when governments impose back-to-work legislation. In some cases, they send in the military to force or reestablish uh, services right away. So for us, it's uh, it's a very, very tricky dynamic to, to go on strike, as it were, against capital. But there's no doubt that what we look at is get attacking the, the neoliberal political philosophy where corporate and capital is taking over all tools of government. And that's where we need to get to. Thank you. Um, an excellent rant. Um, and we started, we've actually started a good little debate. Uh, no, I, I, rant, rants, oh. rants are a good thing for me. I don't know why that would be a criticism. That's, that's exactly what's needed. Um, we're, we're gonna, we could go a few minutes over time if, if folks um, um, have an, a couple extra minutes because things are getting interesting. Layla, I can feel you wanting to jump in. Nick, jump in. I'm gonna introduce one more topic before we close, but please respond. I mean, I just, you know, when I think of the the unity amongst movements, I mean, I really agree with what 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 Annie was saying earlier about, you know, it's not just about assigning each other's petitions or showing up, you know, to each other's protests, but really, really building a global movement to protect people on the planet and um, and all living things, you know, right? Um, and you know, I think, I mean, as a woman, I would be remiss in saying that, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, gives me one of the things that gets me really gets me up in the morning, gets me excited to do my work is the work that women are doing. Um, and I'm so honored to always be in solidarity with um, indigenous women of the Amazon who are who are, are really about no negociando. I mean, it's like no negotiation. You know, when I, you know, spend time with the women defenders of the Amazon against extraction, um, who actually just on, on Indigenous Peoples Day on October 12th, um, Patricia Walinga, amazing leader, woman leader and friend and colleague, um, put up, shared something on Facebook that was like, remember seven years ago when we when we marched from Puyo, from the Amazon to the capital city of Quito and we, you know, women with babies on our backs, you know, and, you know, the, no one thought we could ever do this, but we marched and we walked all the way to Quito, you know, to tell the government there is no way we would ever, ever allow for extraction to take place on our lands, not even with con consultation, not even with consent if some of the elected leaders agreed. We would never allow this. And it's that's that's that fierceness, that determination. And it's really about, you know, the the connection of of women that we have with protecting, <laughs> you know, protecting our children, protecting our land. And and that's that that um, you can see that with indigenous women, you know, from Ecuador to Brazil, it's 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 um, the the unity amongst indigenous women um, all across the Amazon is growing. They're, they had on Indigenous um, Women's Day on August fifth, they had massive events that were, and their message was, um, the women are the cure of the earth. La cura de la teja es son son mujeres. 
you know, like the women are the cure of the earth. And, you know, think about, you know, the, I think about the, the, the connection between the indigenous women of the North and South through the, the treaty ceremonies. I think about the, the, the women's march and the demands of millions of women. And we're pushing, <laughs> we're pushing, you know, the, the systems of patriarchy, you know, think of in Chile, you know, Las Tesis, who became a global movement of women. We're talking about art and culture again, you know, a cultural performance that women around the world started to do. You might, some people might see it as a dance, but it is a, a, a an act of resistance against patriarchy. It's an act of resistance against the police, the systems, the governments that are, you know, that are constantly attacking women and and women are standing up and youth are standing up. I mean, let's remember, you know, a year ago, you know, the massive global strikes that youth led and they were invited to the UN. I remember talking to, you know, some of the youth and they said, you know, we were we were. You know, we felt like we felt like, you know, we don't we don't want false hope. We don't want to be invited into the U.N. to just give speeches and then business as usual continue. He said we walked out of the U.N. We're tired of 25 years of talks. And he said, we don't want we don't want your sympathy. We want you to take action. And their 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 demands have been from action to justice. And I've seen that just over the last couple of years. It's like we're not. You know, we're not just talking about action. We're talking about climate justice. And the youth, you know, if you think about Fridays for Future or Sunrise, or you think about the International Indigenous Youth Council, you know, the youth on the ground in the Amazon that are, you know, putting together Media India, you know, like it's just they are inspiring and they're uniting and um you know, I would just be miss in, in not speaking up for <laughs> for women and for the youth. So I wanted to share. Thank that. you, thank you, Layla. Um, we are we are getting on in time, and I want to do. A, can we do a, a sort of a lightning last round? Let me let me give you a little bit of fuel for it. Uh, a kind of a um, a message from the present, as we've been talking about our message from the future. Um, one of the questions in the chat is from Sarah Kinney who's in Calgary, Alberta, in my country, um, in so-called Canada, um, who writes, we're currently experiencing a fast pace of economic and public service shocks being administered by government at such a pace that it resembles the Trump administration. And in fact, just yesterday, the Alberta government, which is a far-right government in the uh, oil-producing province in in Canada, uh, announced more than 10,000 layoffs of frontline health workers uh, imposing austerity in the midst of the pandemic. Um, just to put uh, to rest any uh, comfortable liberal uh, fantasies about Canada um, <laughs> in our brothers and sisters in the United and and family in the United States. Um, but uh, what uh, the, what the question asks, and I think this is a a kind of a, a traditional one at the end of a panel, but but would be really helpful for the audience. Um, Sarah says, our citizens and unions and professional organizations are out of shape and haven't been organizing effectively for years. Do the panelists have any advice for us activists and storytellers on how to support um, our fellow humans looking for ways to adapt and fight these shocks? So that's your that's your, your task for the last quick go around um, of uh, some closing words and support 
uh, and and wisdom uh, for people who are looking around uh, at what's going on in their communities, see uh, a vision of the years of repair um, as a little distant from the fights against uh, scarcity in being imposed from above in these moments of, of crisis. Um, Kathy, do you want to take sure. on a little well, rallying you know, as we go around? Uh, yes, it is about organizing the unorganized. It is important to really say that um, it's people to make that difference. And, you know, what we're doing right now is not only organizing and educating our nurses, because we have nurses coming from across um, uh, states into California that, you know, work in non-union hospitals and they come over to California because we're unionized, we make the money is good. And so, you know, so it's really important that we go out beyond California and organize those states, those nurses that are not, organized at all. So that's one of the things that we're doing. I think it's very important because until we put people over profits, you know, and we have these silos and they're separating us, we're never going to change this country, you know, and as, and in our union, we, we are all about climate change, social justice, racial injustice, all of those things. And so we are reaching out and, you know, joining together and collaborating with other organizations because it is about the future. It is about the youth. And they are the youth are saying, you know, we want action. And as nurses, we're all about the action. So right now we are organizing the unorganized and it's so important. So yeah. Thank you, Kathy. Um and our last round, let's go to Nick. Um so I mean, I think those of us who are organizing, who run organizations, intentionally engaging artists and finding a way in your movements for everybody to engage. We had in the launch of the Land Back um, campaign yesterday and sort of moving forward, we have engaged spiritual leaders, culture bearers, hip hop artists, street artists, and creating a place for them in this movement to champion this movement, but being them, being them. And uh, and so like we're we, we're we're, help, we're we're helping we're using some of our resources right that we would be normally just use for street organizing to fund a, a land back mixtape. That's all these hip hop artists that are talking about this is what land back means to them and this is why and making it cool for young people and making connect to them to their identity. Where we did a streetscape, uh, Rory Wakeham, up, a uh, indigenous artist from Minneapolis, did a streetscape right off uh, right off of Franklin Avenue in the parking lot of the American Indian Center, uh, which is uh, on Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis, where the American Indian movement first started. Like doing things in meaningful places. And creating a, a way for elders that have come before to champion and stand with you at, today while connecting the young people, but making just like integrating it on the artist and storytelling into your budgets, into your everything that you're doing um, and prioritizing it. And so I would say that's one way to, um, to to make sure that we don't say stagnant, because I think as long as artists and storytellers are involved, the shit ain't going to be stagnant. It's going to be vibrant. It's going to be live. It's going to be, you know, fueling us. And it's going to be uh, continuing to hold the mirror up to us because as we fight, we got to have that mirror held up to us because it'll make us fight harder. Nick, I I just adore that comment. Thank you so much. And, and practical advice for people in struggle. Um, David, I know you're a closet Canadian. You can't hide from me. Your accent betrays you. 
Um, do you have any words for our comrade in Calgary as we close? And Edmonton and Fort McMurray. Here we go. How often can we see the full range of organizations that we see here on this call that are connected to this movie, that are active in Calgary and Edmonton, Fort McMurray and other places on an organizing drive, on a union organizing drive? How often will we see uh, as a diverse range of people come and defend their healthcare workers? That to me would be a first. That to me would be awesome. Because the amount of effort it takes for a union to protect its members is absolutely incredible. It's, and I, I know in the USA, the, the, the amount of anti-union legislation is mind-blowing. It's not quite that bad in Canada. It's getting there. And in, in I'm sure in uh, in Alberta, it's a lot more getting there than in other provinces. But to see the community come out in its full color, in its full breadth, and stand with public service workers, not just healthcare workers, but to stand with them and say, no, you won't do this to our public servants. That would be mind blowing. That would be awesome. And that's what I would like to see coming out of this movement, that we stand together when any one of us is threatened, because united we stand and divided we fall. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Annie. All right, we got organizing, art, unity. Those are good. I'm going to add um, community, that it is easier to sustain ourselves over the long haul if we have a strong set of community. So when people write to me and say, I'm only one person, but I'm concerned, I say, well, go get a friend. You just doubled it. <laughs> get Build your friendship network. Build a community that will sustain us. And also, the more, the more people involved and the more diverse perspectives, the smarter that we will be. So community is really key. There's one other thing that I just have to add really in the US, then you may, this may surprise you coming from a climate activist, but I think one of the most important things that we can do in this country to support the climate movement and all of our movements is get national health care. The absence of national health care causes such a level of anxiety throughout all of society that people are constantly stressed. And when we're organizing mass protests, and it is time for mass civil disobedience, we have exhausted all the polite levers that democracy offers us. It is time for mass disruption and mass civil disobedience. People can't go out and protest because they'll lose their job and then they'll lose their health insurance. And that is immoral. And so I think that one of the biggest movement building, activist sustaining things we can do is enact national health care in this country. Genius. Um, and and so significant that healthcare is under attack in this moment uh, when, when we're in a global health crisis. Lila, do you have some last words as we wrap up? Um, well, the thing that comes to me that, you know, is is really about solidarity. Um, and that's really what, you know, our work at Amazon Watch is, is all about. It's about solidarity. Um, and, you know, really, I think, you know, it's about interconnectedness to re remember that, you know, I think before when we used to talk about the Amazon, people would say, Oh, it's, but it's so far away. And people would even say, even in our movement would say, we have stuff to focus on here. 
right? It's like, that's, you know, like we need to work on, you know, we have refineries in our own backyard. We have this and that and the other. And, and I think that that time has passed where we know we are all interconnected. You know, what happens in the Amazon, um, what happens to both the people and all the beings um, there also happens to us. Um, And so it's about solidarity and, that were, you know, really what what Nick said earlier about, you know, that this is a long haul, right? This is this is, you know, when people say, oh my gosh, this is so bad, and how when is it going to end? Hopefully in May. I'm like, I I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I'm planning for I'm planning to be at home. I'm not planning to open up our office. I'm planning to be at home for a long time, but connected in this way. Because this is, we're in the darkness and we have to create and open up that light again. And, and it's us here. It's all the people we're connected to. We have to, you know, and we have to plan for the long haul. So it is really about community. And, um, you know, I get really excited when I see people post things about, you know, rest is revolutionary because sometimes I get really tired and I want to keep going. And, and, you know, and then, you know, when I take a weekend off and go into nature, like I did this weekend, I, you know, I'm like, I shouldn't feel guilty about that. Right. Like there's always going to be work to do and we have to take care of ourselves too. So that's advice I give to, um, fellow activists and um, revolutionaries and warriors out there who are, are in it for the long haul that um, we have to take care of ourselves and our community and our families so that we can do this for a long time. Oh my goodness. What a powerful final thought. Thank you so much, Layla. It, the message from the future to the years of repair is about taking care of each other and uh, of, of the earth. Um, Layla, I got your email bounce back when we were organizing for this. And I, I know that you're taking time with your family and trying to listen to your own advice and still showed up for this conversation. Um, so thank you so much um, for that. And to all of these uh, wonderful panelists, the film is in, in many ways a love letter to the work that you do and to the prospect of us coming together across all of those artificially imposed uh, divisions um, to build the kind of power we need to overthrow a toxic world order and bring in the years of repair and get started. Um, this conversation was really inspiring for me uh, um, as a filmmaker and activist and to start to summon some of the connections that are evoked in the film in in this version of real life in these boxes with you was a joy. Thanks to Haymarket Books and the fabulous uh, teach-ins you've been doing. We'll see you in the streets with masks on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so all. Long. Take care. Viva. Thank you so much. Viva la luz. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.